grace. The gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we considered two weeks ago, it is the gospel of peace. And we saw that it was not only peace that works for me, but it's peace that needs to also work through me for the world. We saw that the gospel breaks down the dividing wall, the barrier, even between races and nationalities and and different groups is what Paul is referring to. Last week we saw it was the gospel of hope. It was a hope uh, that overflows. Even as the cup of our lives is bumped really hard, that hope is to overflow. It's a hope that sees our world and what's going on in our world and looks for the hand of God. And maybe there's some amazing things happening that we can have hope for in the changes in our world, stripping away some of the things we maybe depended on pre-pandemic so that we would depend on God, maybe helping us to see one another, especially those who are different than us, with new eyes, hope. In both those cases, the gospel calls us to ask how we are that peace and that hope in the world around us. Well, it's also true of the gospel of grace and to help us get to that place, we're going to look together to Romans chapter 6. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Romans chapter 6. Then when I'm done reading, you can say with me, thanks be to God. But this is the word of the Lord for us today. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. Hear that again. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, we count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. It's a ridiculous question. And the moment Paul asks it, someone's eyebrow goes up. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Why the rhetorical question? What shall we say then? We discovered last week that Romans contains more references to hope than any New Testament book. But it is also the container of more references to the word grace than any book in the Bible. And over half of those references is in the first, are in the first five chapters of the book. 
And so when Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? He's saying, well, because of all this grace I've been talking about, Paul has been making the point that this gospel is a gospel of grace. You know these words, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We quote those. But what about verse 24 that goes on and says, and all are justified freely by his grace. Chapter 4, verse 16, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace. And then those great words of chapter 5, verse 20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Sure sounds like maybe we need to ask a question about grace. But now Paul takes this rhetorical question that turns all heads and he asks it. And as he writes these words, I can see, I can imagine a little smile kind of curling up into the corner of his mouth. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You know, he's really asking this question. Because of grace, does it really matter how I live? And what I do? Grace. If there is a word that is distinctly Christian, it is this one little word. But when we think about grace, we also know that is not the way the world runs, right? We know that, right? The world does not run by grace. You earn everything you get, we're told. You are what you do. God helps those who help themselves. But that's not grace. Some people, some polls, when you ask that question, God helps those who help themselves, ask them where it comes from, they'll tell you that that's a verse of scripture in the Bible. But that's not grace. And that's not in the Bible. Because God actually helps those who have no ability to help themselves. Like you and me. And no doubt there were some who heard Paul who when they heard his talk about grace would accuse him of what we call cheap grace. A grace that winks at sinful behavior and tells us to carry on as long as we name the name of Jesus. And if Paul stopped at that question and left us hanging, it would be easy to come away with our own conclusion that what I did was of no consequence because I was covered by grace. But Paul did not stop there, did he? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? His response, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And that's the point. Grace does something in us, in me, in you, that changes you and me. It changes who we are, and that changes what we do. Eugene Peterson's translation of verse 2 and 3 says, says this, If we left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? A declaration of faith in Jesus, you see, is a declaration that I am a different 
person. It's a declaration saying you are a different person. It is not just a truth claim to adopt. It's just not a, a, simply a religious position. It's not simply a profession to maintain. It is not a title, Christian, to record for others to see and know. Following Jesus means you now take on a new identity. And I think that's why Paul speaks of baptism in our passage today. It's the only place in this, in this large book on grace, it's the only place in Romans where Paul talks about baptism. But his point is simple here. Baptism marks you as someone different. What you were before dies. Now you live by a different set of rules. The message translation of verse 3 and 4 says this. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water, we entered into the new country of grace. A new life in a new land. A new life in a new land. God's grace works in us so that as we see in our passage, we too may live a new life. Verse 4, we will also live with him Verse 8, verse 11, we'll be alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so you see, I am no longer what I was before Jesus. And if there was ever a time for that to be reflected in our world, this is that time. Because it is more than just a profession, it is more than a religious affiliation. And so it seems to me that Paul's question, his ridiculous question, is very current today. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You see, in some ways, we all struggle with a disconnect. A disconnect between what we say we are and what we often reveal to those around us in what we do. In poll after poll, this country of ours, the majority of, pop, of the population identifies as Christian. But why is it not reflected in the larger culture? And why is that Christian identifying population shrinking? Now, it's so easy for us to look out there somewhere, to look out in the world and in the culture somewhere, and to blame somebody. But Brendan Manning makes a sobering statement that I think summarizes part of the problem. And I think it's what Paul was addressing with his ridiculous question. Manning says this, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians, who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. I hear that and I go, ouch. But then I, I ask, why is that? Why the disconnect? And I wonder, I wonder if it is because we forget that we actually are new persons, that we actually have a new identity, that we actually are citizens of the country of grace. I wonder, have I allowed my faith to be defined by that? Or have I allowed my faith to be defined more by my declarations and my positions and my religion than by the grace found in my identity in Christ? 
Now, this past Wednesday, I referred to Tish Harrison Warren's little book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, and her words are worth repeating again when she wrote this. When she was talking about waking up in the morning, she said, we are marked from our first waking moment by an identity that is given to us by grace. We are marked by an identity that is given to us by grace, an identity that is deeper and more real than any other identity we will don that day. Now think about the identities we don each day. The identity we have in Christ is deeper and more real than any other identity. So from the moment I began today, from the moment when I got out of bed at about 5.30 this morning and my feet hit the ground, from that moment I was marked in the identity of the beloved child of God. I was marked by the grace of God. It's as if, as if each day is a new baptism where I take on the new life and the new person Jesus has made me to be and is making me to be, and I walk into my world with that. Paul described it to the Galatians this way. So in Christ Jesus, you are children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Wow. So Every morning that I get out of bed and I put my feet on the ground, I'm clothed with Christ. I'm walking in a new identity. I am that new person. I take on the identity. That is who I am. But now here's the question that I now must ask. Is that what I'm allowing to define my life? Am I allowing that truth to shape my identity, my real identity and how I live it out? Or am I just a recipient of God's grace, but not a reflector of it? What am I allowing to primarily shape who I am? I, I think I need to sit with that question. I think we need to sit with that. What, what am I allowing to fundamentally shape the life I live, the person I am, the way of being I have in the world? Is it my immediate intake? I reach for my cell phone, my smartphone, my device to get my media intake? Is it my political affiliation? What is it? What is it that shapes us most? You see, in the shaping, things shape us below the surface. It can be subtle. Sometimes we even assign Christian designation to it, but, but ask yourself what really is shaping your life, your identity. You know, one of my biggest concerns I have in the conversations on race and faith, on politics and pandemic in our world is this, especially for us who declare that we're followers of Jesus. Blasting out a post and sending a news leak or tweeting a comment is simple and easy. But I wonder if as followers of Jesus in the process, we are letting other influencers and influence us, influences shape us more than our true identity in Christ and the grace we have received. In writing about race and the Bible, Tim Keller said this, the gospel must drain us of our own self-righteousness if we're going to be able to call others to abandon the destructive self-justification of racism. 
both active and conscious as well as implicit and hidden. But hear what he said, the gospel must drain us of our own self-righteousness. I think that begins, though, in recognizing our grace-given identity. When we ask the question, are you a Christian? We're really asking this question, are you acting like a Christian? Are you doing Christian things? And then what we have is we have our mental checklist, right? We have our mental checklist of what we think should be on the list for you to follow through in acting like a Christian. But that really isn't the question Paul is posing with this ridiculous question about whether we should keep on sinning. He is actually asking this question, how will you live out your truest identity? In our world, being Christian often has more to do with how we line ourselves uh, religiously or denominationally or, or theologically or politically. But that's not what's at the heart of being Christian. And, and implied here, implied here, in all that Paul says to us this morning, is not only that I turn and adopt an identity of grace, but I embrace a new way of being in the world because of that identity, right? Paul gives us a reminder that in this world where we protect the sovereignty of ourself, he gives us a reminder that sounds strange. Are you ready? In this, in this world of ours where we protect the sovereignty of ourselves, listen to what he says. Our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. What a strange thought that is in our world. But what is this old self? Well, it's the default posture humankind has. It was first evident in the garden as Adam and Eve thought they had a better plan than God. How often do I think that I have a better plan than God? What about you? It is this posture of self-sufficiency. It's the position of self-reign. It's the plan of self-promotion. So what's the reminder that Paul gives us in that passage? He says, our old self was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with. Well, Paul's reminder is this, that because of what Jesus has done in our lives, because of grace, that old way of being is no longer valid. My being in the world is to no longer be ruled by that posture and that position which means that I need to examine my current way of being in the world. And in some ways, Paul says that in verse 11 when he says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word count is, is like an accounting term. Take, take measurement, examine. Examine yourselves as dead to sin. See yourselves, register yourselves, mark it down. So am I willing to examine my way of being in the world as someone who is a recipient of this grace-given identity? Am I willing to take account of my way of being in this world and see if it is actually transforming my life and the world around me by loving God and loving others? Will I allow God's grace to be that powerful in my life? Well, Thomas Terrence did. I'm indebted to my friend Dennis King who shared this story. You see, half a century ago, Thomas Terrence felt like the country was changing for the worse. The civil rights movement infuriated Thomas. His hatred of African Americans and Jews led him to get into the most 
um, um, violent aspect of the Ku Klux Klan, the most radical aspect. He adopted the views of the group called the Christian Identity Movement, a racist, anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish cult that functioned under the banner Christian. His hate led him to join a group that would bomb synagogues in Mississippi. His hate led him to carry a bomb to a civil rights leader who was Jewish, to his home in 1968. But the FBI agents that were following him stopped him because they were investigating his KKK group. So the FBI began to chase Terrence and his companion, and then they engaged in a bloody shootout where his companion, a woman with him, was killed. And then Terrence was shot four times at close range, and he survived. He survived. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison with only one thought in mind, and that was escape. And sure enough, six months later, he escaped, only to be recaptured following another gunfight where that accomplice was also killed. He was taken back to prison, but this time he was moved into solitary confinement in the maximum security unit. To keep from going crazy in that isolation, Thomas decided to begin reading heavily. His top priority was to read all the racist and anti-Semitic books he hadn't devoured before, and he was just going to absorb himself in that thinking. But then as he began reading, he read a book on neo-fascist political theory and cultural analysis. And the author was referring to all these other philosophers. So he began to read other philosophers. He actually ordered the works of Plato and Aristotle and Marcus Aurelius, and he began to read all of those. And then when he got done with all of that, he found himself reading the Gospels. Now, there was something going on that Thomas didn't realize was going on, and it was this. There was a group of women who were praying for him. The woman who was leading that group for two years was the wife of the FBI agent who led the capture of Thomas. They'd been praying for two years. And all that reading, first with the white supremacist dogma, and then reading the great philosophers, which then led him to reading the greatest mind, Jesus Christ. The Gospels? Well, let me tell you what Thomas said. He said this. My eyes began to be opened. My many sins began flooding to my mind. And with them, conviction, repentance, and tears of confession. One night, I knelt on the floor of my cell and prayed a simple prayer to Jesus, asking for forgiveness and offering my life to him if he wanted it. I felt like, it felt like a thousand pounds had been lifted from my shoulders. Now hear what he says. Something changed inside of me, and I haven't been the same since. I had left the road of easy religion that was leading me to destruction and stepped onto the narrow path that leads to eternal life. And then he said this. I awoke the next day to find that I was now spiritually alive. Dr. Thomas Terrence eventually became the president of the C.S. Lewis Society. But before that, he went to seminary. He got a master's of divinity. He got a doctor's of ministry degree. And then eventually he co-pastored a multiracial 
inner city church in Washington, D.C. And he began to advocate, advocate for African-Americans and others who were experiencing racial injustice. And he began to live out his gospel, the gospel of grace extended to him and extended through him into the world. The title of his book that was published last year says it all, Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love. Our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, all of this is only possible through his grace in our lives. Now, there's a song we like to sing, and Pastor Serena referenced that I would be referencing this in my message. It's the song, Spirit of the Living God. Spirit of the Living God. And we sing that song, and there's one lyric that seizes my attention whenever I hear it. And I pray that when we're done here today, you'd go back to that prayer playlist, and you would play Spirit of the Living God. She made a special link just for that song. Here's the one lyric that seizes me when I hear it and when I sing it. He changes what we see and what we seek. Is the Spirit of God changing what you see and what you seek? That's what he does. That's what he does here. That's what he does in our lives. You see, at the end of the day, I think that is what this scripture is implying to us. In the power of God's grace, there's a change in my way of being in the world, which really primarily begins to look like a Micah 6-8 life, which we talked about last week, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Where the old, tired, self-driven approach to life is done away with. I mean, there's a new way of being. This grace is intended so that, as it says in verse 4, we too might walk in newness of life. We might walk into this world in newness of life. Because of the grace of Jesus, I walk into my world differently. I now look at the world around me with a different lens than the world around me adopts. The lens through which I look at is the lens of his kingdom versus the lens through which the world adopts, which is so self-focused. Grace does that to us. Seeing as Jesus saw, seeking that. Seeking what Jesus sought, that's what our desire becomes. Being as Jesus was in the world, wanting that for us. And living in the country of grace, my identity in the world becomes a reflection of the grace I've received from Jesus. And when I look at Jesus and how he extended grace, I realize something. Jesus looked at people and he cared for and advocated and lifted up the broken. He welcomed the marginalized. He embraced those unlike him. He ate with the outcast. He even advocated for a criminal at the cross. And I look at that and I say, that's the problem with grace. That's why sometimes grace is hard for us to stomach because grace welcomes those we least expect, especially those who I might not want to welcome or those I do not think need to be welcomed. But then I think again, wait a minute, he even welcomed me. And that, my friends, more than you could ever imagine, is the greatest evidence of grace in the world. And that thought invites me to offer grace in the same measure that's been given to me. 
in this new way of being in the world, grace is to be offered from me because grace has been given to me. Tim Keller went on and said this, repent of the sin of forgetting your gracious welcome by God through the costly sacrifice of Christ. Repent of the sin of forgetting your gracious welcome by God through the costly sacrifice of Christ. Have I forgotten the gracious welcome I've received from God? Or as Thomas Terence said, the, that's the same grace that's been so abundant in my life is available today to anyone. Grace to grace through my life. Which brings me full circle to the question, the ridiculous question Paul asks, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. Because grace has gripped me. Grace has welcomed me. Grace has given me a new identity and it has sent me into the world to live a new way of being that becomes a reflector of the grace of Jesus Christ. This gospel of grace is changing me. It changes me and it is changing me. May the gospel of grace be seen in me, in us. And that is definitely what the world needs right now to see. Grace. Grace extended to us. Grace extended through us. How about you? Amen. Well, my friends, so grateful we are for the good grace that God has given to us. Let us pray together. Lord, thank you that we have this moment in time to allow our minds and our hearts to be shaped by the beauty and the power of your grace. Lord, I come to you in confession that oftentimes I allow other things, other narratives, other influences and influencers to shape who I am and what I do and even what I think more so than the truth of my identity in Christ through grace. So Lord, I come in confession to you. I do come as that tax collector and say, Lord, have mercy. But now, Lord God, I, I come to you. We come to you and we declare that we are different people because of Jesus. And we pray that it will walk into this world and will be reflectors of your grace and your mercy. That we will be Micah 6-8 people who act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God all because of your grace and only by your grace. So Lord, pour out this optimistic grace upon us that enables us to live as reflectors of the grace we've received. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. Well, happy Father's Day to you men. And uh, we're grateful, as I said, for your influences in our lives. Receive this benediction. And now may we go in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may his grace continue to shape us and mold us and make us into the people 
he calls us to. And may his grace, his amazing, powerful, extended grace be extended to the world around us this day. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray.